Welcome to this week's episode of Armchair Producers. I am one of your hosts, George Terran. Five out of seven Russian bots do approve of my service. I am with, finally, the talent has arrived, Mr. Travis Croft. How are you today? Ah, lost your audio. Hmm, interesting. The talent has not arrived. It was perfectly fine before we went live. Because we do actually kind of do a dress rehearsal for these things. No, still not working. Hmm. Working. Oh, there. Oh, coming back. Nope. That's not working. There we go. Okay. We got hopefully, hopefully it's not too shitty. For some reason, the computer has now decided it will tell me exactly what I can do with a lifetime supply of chocolate. Um... <laughs> <laughs> well thank you very much ladies and gentlemen for joining us on your chosen platform of choice let's think about uh there's youtube.com slash armchair producers twitch.tv slash armchair producers facebook.com slash uh fry brain productions and podcast services around the world where most of you get our wonderful content and we are delightful brown noise for you to just to if you need to <laughs> now we've got a bit of a stack show for you and there is a slight change this week we are not going to be doing binge browse and burn because we are going to instead be talking not one not two not three but four movies of the week or of the fortnight that, we, once upon a time that was normal but like not with a new disciplined approach um but we, we thought are, um yeah. Blend in a few weeks. <laughs> it's been a bit of a stacked month or two for movies coming out in Australia, and we've actually had time to see some of them for a change. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I thought so. We're going to start by covering off, of course, the uh, George's Chain movie selection, mm-hmm. Bringing Out the Dead, followed mm-hmm. by three in random order, probably um, Terminator <laughs> 3, uh, The Flash, and of course, the fourth Indiana Jones film. Mm-hmm. And some people may be going, oh, The Flash, interesting. And yes, it is possibly a sign of, um, you know, things not sitting too well over there when it's already legally available to download on podcast services so soon after it was released. I saw it at the cinema, so yay for me. <laughs> now, shall we crack on straight away with our chain movie of the week? Let's do that. So this is, of course, 1999's Bringing Out the Dead. Yep, one of the lower-rated Martin Scorsese movies. Um, uh, uh, Like I said, uh, directed by Martin Scorsese, co-written by, as um, Scorsese said, and I think it's kind of true, co-written by Paul Schrader. Who I think it was actually written about was based on a book by Joe Carney, but the screenplay was 100% by Schrader. Yeah, and um, he was uh, he picked to to do this adaptation because nobody writes New York After Hours better than Paul Schrader. And you look at some of the stuff that he's done, and there is definitely an argument to be had there. <laughs> uh, for sure, uh, I don't know if he quite nailed it. This one, though, um, what's mm. it about, George? 
Uh, haunted by the patients he failed to save, a monumentally burned out Manhattan ambulance paramedic fights to maintain his sanity over three increasingly turbulent nights. That's basically the story. And we've got a pretty stacked cast here. Yeah. We have, of course, uh, Nicolas Cage doing Pete Nicolas Cage mm -hmm. in the late 90s. He's then wife, Patricia Arquette, uh -huh. John Goodman, Ving Rhames, Tom Sizemore, Mark Anthony, Mary Beth Hart. Uh, you might also recognize Nesta Serrano and Ada Totoro, uh, just sort of famous character actors. And that mm -hmm. faces you definitely recognize. Yeah. Um, and uh, a little bit of Martin Scorsese as well, if you uh, listen very carefully. Uh, you know that voice from such movies as Shark Tale. Um, <sighs> So uh, this synopsis there kind of gives us a, a, a bit of a, an idea about what's going on. We have follow Nicolas Cage, who plays uh, Frank Pierce, who is our monumentally burnt-out paramedic, uh, and we follow him through a series of nights driving an ambulance around Manhattan, doing what ambulance drivers do, sort of cleaning up the refuse mm. of you know New York society, um, and dealing with equally burnt out other uh, paramedics and medical personnel. Mm. This is not a film that makes New York look like a place that you want to visit, does it? No, it really does not. And it's it's definitely not trying to shine a spotlight on unsung heroes or anything like that. In fact, it's really showing a very dark side of the paramedic and nursing and general healthcare side that... You kind of think, mm, I can believe this to a certain degree, which is not a good thing, socially speaking. <laughs> um, yeah, well, you and I know some people who work in the medical profession, and they are almost perpetually burnt out. Though this is probably a poor example for us to be running, because considering what's happened over the last few years, it's not been a standard yeah. run of time. But, for, but I think people are more burnt out than normal. Um, I, I really struggled with this film. Now, I saw this when it came out mm. in uh, came out here, and I reckon about two thousand. Mm. So it says ninety nine, but I'm fairly sure I saw, I can remember when I saw it. Mm. And that was two thousand. And first of all, how the fuck was that twenty three years ago? Who said that was okay? I didn't. I wasn't consulted. Mm -mm. Nope. Um, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> Don't have enough memories for 23 years ago. Shit, what have I done for the last 23 years of my life? I've been doing this show. That's what I've been doing. Um, and Not quite 23 years. <laughs> quite, but a decent chunk of it. But um, you're welcome, everyone. Um, I remember thinking it was all right when I saw it. Because the thing about having an IMDb account mm. is sometimes I pop onto a film and I'm like, I've got a rating on it. And I don't remember ever seeing it. Mm. Um in this case, I do remember seeing it, but I obviously rated it at some point in the last 23 years. Uh, I think IMDb was around in 2000, so mm. it might have even been when I saw it then. I gave it a 7. Um, I think that was a bit generous now because I struggled to make through make it through this film um, and really make sense of exactly what Scorsese was trying to say here. Just to make you feel really old, IMDb was founded... 17th of October, 1990. I think it was like a message board thing at the time, like a because the web didn't exist in 1990. Mm. Um, 
but yeah, I, I might have had my account since 2000. I might have actually rated <laughs> this a day after for um, shits and giggles. Um, but I, I struggled with this to kind of get to what the point of it was. At moments like this, I almost sensed it was almost you could see it as a companion piece to something like um, Taxi Driver, which you know, Schrader and Scorsese famously collaborated on in the 70s, in a sense of we had in that film Travis Bickle. You know, the tab driver driving around a lot, especially at night, giving us um, uh, his voiceover narrative of what was going on and his thoughts mm -hmm. about, you know, the scum of a city, the city needs to be cleaned up, yada, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. And there were moments in this where I almost saw Frank Pierce as, um, you know, a stand in for Travis Bickle because he's doing a lot of the same things. He's driving around New York at night, he's talking, we get that voiceover complaining about how the city will kill you, it doesn't discriminate um you know it's just i was like um well it's this familiar feeling like is he trying to do something like the uh, you know a similar character to travis bickle but it's a story doesn't hang together anywhere near as well as taxi driver did for me in a mm -hmm. sense that i don't even really know what the story of this film is i honestly don't know if there actually is a narrative story here i think it's just a character piece about so like, oh, let's look at a, a very rough three-day sliver of a man's life, basically with no context at the start or conclusion at the end. And it's sort of like, oh, okay, um, sure. But he's not exactly a redeeming character. He's not particularly likable or affable. He's not, uh, none of the characters in it are, particularly nice and the antics that happen around it whilst shot and presented in a largely kind of realistic kind of manner there's an absurdity to a lot of them like the interactions that Ving Rhames character has over the phone with um with, with dispatcher yeah, with the dispatcher and um, the fact that they crashed the car, uh, the ambulance, and it's like, yeah, that's that's what it is. And then it, after that moment, it suddenly becomes a thing that all the ambulance drivers are trying to total their cars so they can't go out and do their job because they're all so burnt out and there's not enough of them that they can't even for, afford to fire them when they're running late and they've got this track record of trying to be fired as well. Okay, this there's almost a sense of parody to this that just doesn't fit. And You're right. There is some sort of comedic element. There's that angle between Nicolas Cage and his boss. Mm. Where his boss is like, you've been late five times in a row. And you're like, okay, fire me. He goes, I'll fire you tomorrow. I promise, you know. Mm. Which, you know, if that isn't, the chemistry between these two guys is kind of funny. Yeah. And, and they are amusing. But that does kind of grates against the rest of the film. Yeah, is it, if it's supposed to be a moment of levity to let the pressure out, it didn't quite click for me. Yeah. The other part that didn't quite click for me was the elements of magical realism here, the 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 ghosts, the yeah. constantly the the hallucinations of the young girl. Our character uh, Frank here has constant hallucinations of a girl named Rose mm. who failed to say at some point in the past, and he'll see her face on passers-by in the street and. Uh, you know, uh, by the end of the film, he's actually hallucinating of her, yelling at him, why didn't you save me? Why did you kill me? Um, we get an entire flashback scene dedicated to him trying to save her. And there's uh, the, uh, another scene is, you know, 
uh, we see him talking to or hearing voices from a comatose heart patient in the hospital telling yeah. him to let him die, to let him die. And I'm like, now, I'm guessing those are intended to not be real, like they didn't really happen. You know what just popped into my head, a similar thing? The ending to The Whale. Yes. It's that kind of sudden weird break with, wait, what exactly is going on here? What what are you presenting me with here? And this just feels so, it, it's a really weirdly constructed movie with these fantastical, phantasmagorical elements. And then the almost like bastardized pulp fiction kind of elements of when, um, Frank and Tom Sizemore's character in the car, and it's like keeps on doing all that sort of like super fast, uh, fast mm. screening of them just kind of doing things. And just there's, there's the conversation between the two drivers, it's almost like, it's like this, this feels a little bit like a, a weird lens to look at the um, the Vega Brothers sequences from Pulp Fiction. They're trying to put this kind of tell us this relationship between these two people in the confines of this car but it doesn't work some of it works i mean in the sense that some of the characters in here are really nicely written and mm. actually the dialogue uh fits them and they do it like this is one of the best roles i've ever seen from thing rames mm -hmm. um <laughs> normally he plays you know the silent heavy type character marcellus wallace in pulp fiction um I'm thinking the police officer in mm -hmm. uh, the Dawn of the Dead, which uh, we watched uh, a few months ago. Yeah. Or even um, the was he not the police officer in Piranha 3D? Yes, he um, was. <laughs> killing people with the outboard motor. Um, <laughs> uh, one of his finest roles. Um, so those are the kind of characters he normally plays, but to hear him playing like almost a, a lay preacher uh in the way he gives sermons and stuff he was really charismatic yeah. and fun to watch and i felt like my interest level leaped every time ving was on screen i really enjoyed the scene where they bring back a a reviver drug overdose victim in, that, a, in a rock that was fun um it was, it was fun so, but all, all of the other characters are so violently in the opposite direction to oh they, they are the only other character i could say i really enjoyed believe it because he's in a very small part of a film mm. is the character of Gris played by Efimo Omalami who I think is a security guard or police officer who works oh. at the hospital who yeah. constantly refers to himself at the third person Gris yeah. is going home soon Gris gets up in 47 minutes Gris is going to have a warm bath you know don't make um, don't glasses <laughs> <laughs> so I actually really enjoyed his character I'm like he actually said he was fun to watch Mm. And he really seemed to be having fun with a few lines he got. And, I mean, I'm not saying the film should have focused on necessarily his character, but I'm like, some of it was really well written like like that. Um, and, you know, uh, some of John Goodman's stuff was pretty well written. John Goodman was really good in this. Mm -hmm. um, Nicolas Cage wasn't bad, but I just don't think he had a whole lot to work with here. I feel like um, in trying to make this as gritty and soul wrenching and tired as the character is supposed to be they leached out any energy from the main characters and the engagement between him and um uh mary Patri uh, patricia arquette 
so devoid of any chemistry of any kind it was just soulless and it's like okay you you've kind of screwed yourselves here by making it so so morose and so sad and so despondent it's not enjoyable to watch there's nothing to kind of latch onto except for Ving Rhames character not in it a lot and a security guard and they kind of if you want to make this movie about the despondency of that why not just make everyone else larger than life in a in a away and they've but there's not really that the only other person that is kind of working in the same movie as Vin Rains but on the spectrum opposite is Tom Sizemore's character with the just borderline ultra violence um and it kind of worked as as as, as a kind of um balance to the scales of Vin Rains and showing uh, Nicholas Cage's engagements between the two and one kind of being the angel on his shoulder and the other being the devil and it kind of works when you think about it that way but they're so wrenched apart and such huge spats of time where it's an internal monologue of just this sad lonely man just going oh, I just want to have a sleep oh my god Shoot me with adrenaline. I need it, please. I would also say this film is too long. Yeah. Um, and, and it's not that long, really, by no. 2023 standards. It's two hours, one minute. Though mm. it felt long. Um, mm. And it probably could have done with 20 minutes hacked out of it. I mean, mm. there's some subplots in here that just don't really seem to fit for me. The whole subplot regarding the Oasis yeah. and Psy um, just seemed superfluous to me so this is uh size so played by cliff curtis who mm. is a face you'll definitely know mm -hmm. um shows like fear the walking dead movies like sunshine um mm. he's definitely uh, a well-known face mm. uh he plays a drug dealer uh, named psychotes who uh at one point mary visits his drug den i guess for want of a better term yeah and gets high and falls asleep in the bedroom there and frank has to sort of extricate her from from a den at the same time is actually taking something from from him to help him sleep as well mm. and later on we come back to them and, and they they've been attacked in a, a drug related uh you know mm. at, attack where they don't have a drug gang mm. um but the whole sequence just uh, why are you here i mean it really seems to set up exists just to set up the second scene later on after the the, the drug uh violence um which is kind of shocking but Again, it doesn't really serve any purpose to the story that it had to be there. And you take that out, that's 15 minutes gone. Yeah. And you're down to a, you know, a much breezier one hour 45, which, you know, I imagine would probably be in the realm of Scorsese's shortest film. Mm. Um, but uh, it didn't, I don't know, it, it didn't help that it was there. And, you know, it, it, despite the fact I found Cy uh, uh, to be, um, again, a slightly more interesting character and played well by Cliff Curtis. Mm -hmm. just, didn't you know like, well okay what did that purpose that what did that tell us really yeah yeah it maybe did. i'm stupid and i'm missing the entire point but i didn't get anything out of it i i don't know you can certainly hypothesize and kind of guess or, oh maybe he's just the symbol of the like the kind of socially unaccepted alternative path that he could take to get some gratification 
in a in a world that doesn't care and a world that doesn't want to give him any support his boss doesn't want to give him the release that he can he could go to this seedier darker side of the street so to speak and and get momentary relief but the fact that he has this apparently rare or uncommon reaction to this drug um it's sort of like no okay his body is literally fighting against it and he's his own worst enemy <laughs> i don't know but it doesn't come across like that without you stopping and really reading a lot into it that isn't necessarily there absolutely it would take a take a, a much deeper thinker about film than me to find that uh, interestingly i think this is the only scorsese film of the 90s that wasn't nominated for uh, oscars it got no oscar nominations and if you look at its awards hall it wasn't good it's won two awards from the florida film critics circle awards and the italian national syndicate of film journalists um so all entirely world renowned reviews and uh, um such as us it, it, uh, yeah well we don't give out a wish maybe we should uh maybe people would actually listen um but uh it's it just sort of felt like a, a definitely a lesser work even then um was it night moves the other scorsese film we saw with the other arquette sister at a while back uh, trying to get up town again yeah what, what was it I'll, I'll have a look into what that one was called but yeah it was that one at least generally kind of stuck with what it was trying to do but even then it's like mm, i don't know <laughs> uh not night radio grifters no uh, um gosh i mean it was we should remember the names of the films we see yeah, we um really, uh, you know but let's not and say that we did <laughs> um but i it was it was again one of the lesser films by 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 him um hmm that most people probably wouldn't know because it just didn't make the same kind of impact after hours after hours film. yeah there we go um you know that was i suggest well a strange film again like this it's mm. more effective in this and i just don't maybe scorsese was trying to do something different in his film that he'd done previously yeah. it, it just didn't seem to fit his style he should probably stick to more i don't know straight ahead if that's a word for it but like the the blending of a supernatural angle and the realist sort of gritty angle he didn't those two just didn't fit together in this film maybe some directors can make that work i think guillermo del toro's one this comes to mind who kind of makes that kind of they just sort of blend somehow in his films they this done just didn't and i was quite bored at points um and and just like going well, what are you doing well these guys these people are no fun to be around yeah um and they're not doing anything particularly exciting and then um, they're not showing me an uh, an engaging individual like even tom sizemore's character of ultra violence is not you were not given there wasn't any cathartic release at the end where he gets his comeuppance or anything he gets away with all the shit that he does and it's like okay so i'm just watching a bad guy do bad stuff and nothing happens and is He's not a likable bad guy like Killmonger from Black Panther, where they made him a little bit too good, and his his message was a little too good because you know it's a very good point. He was he was just uh, he was just an asshole. I mean, we don't get any backstory in his people. <laughs> he just is, you know, he goes around one kill on to kill people yeah. as a paramedic, and you're like, 
that's unusual for a paramedic. Um, why is he so angry? Yeah. You know, um, it's the little vignettes of the different drivers he works with is fun. Yeah. That, you know, it just doesn't seem to quite fit. I keep saying it doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't work. Mm. Um, this is not my favorite Scorsese film. No, this, this is a very odd blend that is somehow curdled. And things didn't mix the way that they're supposed to. <laughs> uh, maybe I mean, my review on IMDb, my seven, I gave it 20 years ago. Maybe maybe says this film worked a little better in the late 90s than it does now. Some of the digital effects are looking a bit creaky in this, by the way. Um, you know, the, the they've pasted that girl's face all over all the, um, uh, some other standing actors and the ghost characters he's helping at different points. You're like, yeah, that that great. Yeah, there are better effects done in that part of uh, that time. That time. Yeah, exactly, a hundred percent. But uh, unless you have anything else to say on bringing out the dead, it is your turn to pick, my friend. Right. I have gone. I have nothing else to say, but I'm going to go with something a little bit different. Okay. Well, very different. Um, now you might groan at this thought, but there is logic behind my choice. On- we are going to follow John Goodman. Okay. And we are going to 2008's Speed Racer. <clears throat> that is kind of what I expected. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Speed Racer. Okay. Yep. I yep. have never Your seen siblings. this. I have never seen this before. Um, I think I remember the cartoon it was based on. Yes. Um, and I, it certainly didn't get good reviews at the time. No, not. Um, but here's my logic. The Wachowskis are very deliberate filmmakers. Um, they, this is the first film they did after the Matrix trilogy. This is three mm-hmm. or four years after mm-hmm. Matrix Reloaded came out. And if you remember how big those films were, well, now we look back on the, you know, um, the sequels and sort of go, they weren't very good. Um, at the time, they, I think they made a lot of money. Um, mm-hmm. And everyone was excited to see what the Wachowskis did next, and this is what they did next. Yeah. My What I'm wondering is, what were they trying to do um, here with Speed Racer? And maybe they were trying to do nothing. But I don't know that that's what they do in film. Um, if we look at the, the, the output, you know, you're a big fan of Sense8 for uh-huh. TV. They were behind that. We had the Matrix reboot. We had uh, Jupiter Rising. Those are the ones I can remember. Ascending. Uh, uh, ascending. Um, there's something they're trying to say in most of their films. If you look uh-huh. back now at the Matrix films, they are an obvious allegory to uh the the journey that lily and lana were about to go through as trans people mm. um obviously they were you know they were before pre pre-transition when they made those films uh-huh. they, one of them might have by the end uh-huh. um but at the time when they came out everyone was like oh it's about capitalism it's about communism it's about this it's about that but now we know what they're actually trying to get to in that so uh-huh. i'm wondering if there's a subtext to speed racer which went over people's heads in in 2008 or was just buried under a bad film uh over bright colors and stuff that people just didn't actually appreciate so that's why i have gone with 
a film that does look to have very little, very little going for it. Have you seen the Ang Lee version of Hulk? I think I did once. Okay. So that is quite an outlier in many ways compared to a lot of other superhero movies, especially the ones that were coming out around that time. And um, one of the, sort of like, depending on who you talk to, some people really love the way that it embraced the, um, sort of like the comic book presentation of that movie with the literal frames. I personally love that. I thought it was really fun way of just creating um, almost an independent superhero movie um, with that kind of very style-based idea. Um, my memories of Speed Racer are kind of similar to that in there's a lot going on, the visuals and the, the, the exuberantly bright world that they race in and live in and the absurdity of this kind of single bloody mindedness of the only things that people in this yeah, in the universe of speed racers seem to care about is speed racing sugar and family and it's like okay simple this is an anime brought to life and it's like okay they succeeded in that but they didn't they, cho they chose a, a weird thing but there's not actually a particularly interesting story to go with it and it, it it's going to be interesting going back to this one <sighs> it could be a bit long it could be a really bad choice but i'm trying to be brave here and pick films and i haven't seen because i trust me i was very tempted there are lots of ways to get back to the big lebowski after this film um and you know <laughs> i love that film the other choice by the way the fallback choice on this one that i was tossing up this afternoon was to follow mark anthony who plays noel he, he was also in Hackers. Uh, that, was, that was the alternative, was Hackers, the most 90s film with ever 90s. Um, so Hackers. Hackers. Maybe it could Maybe. be more fun. Who knows? But I just sort of feel like this is worthy of going back and just checking it out and seeing, you know, with 15 years of context, context and experience, what do is it make any more sense now than it did when it came out? Yeah, and uh, it's got a couple of interesting casting in there. Certainly um, two people especially that kind of were relatively hot in the moment. Emil Hirsch, I think this was just after him having um, uh, The Girl Next Door success with uh, Alicia Cuthbert. Matthew Fox, this was one of his roles following on from the success of Lost at the time. And then we've got Christina Ricci in there. Um, Susan Sarandon, you've got John Goodman, our connection. Um, and there's a few kind of people that just pop up in there. Like, oh, I, I recognize that guy and I recognize that one. And um, one of the, I can't remember the character's name or the actor's name, but he's like, plays the head honcho. It's like, yes, you're going to come and race for us, boy. He's the same guy that played um, the narrator in V for Vendetta, which was produced by the Wachowskis. It's like, and always England prevails. So, and he plays a very similar kind of role. <laughs> As I'd like to also point out, Kick Gurry is in the list here of actors. You're probably not going to know that name, but he was a moderately well-known Australian actor in <laughs> the late 90s, early 2000s. And and I'm just saying, just saying, he was in Edge of Tomorrow. Um, so, you know, um, don't discount kick. <laughs> Very well. I won't, I won't. 
Now, shall we move on to the... Um, we were talking about bringing out the dead. Should we um, mention the other Nicolas Cage movie that we've both watched recently? Which is Nicolas The Cage. Flash. The Flash. <laughs> of course. Sorry, you had me thinking there for a second. Not really Nicolas, because I don't think it was really him. It, um, it, if, if it is, oh, he's looking rough. If he's yeah. not, oh, that's some rough CGI, ladies and gentlemen. So I saw this a couple of weeks ago at the cinema. You've seen it on On Demand in Australia. On, yes. Um, uh, I assume it'll be available to buy and rent because it has not done well at the cinema, shall we say. I believe I saw a headline that said it is now the biggest superhero flop of all time. Yeah, Warner Brothers can't seem to really catch much of a break. They're having a bad year because I think the other one in that conversation was um, Shazam. Uh, Shazam was uh, not doing well. According to Forbes, Warner Brothers will lose $200 million thanks to The Flash. Ooh. Biggest bombs in uh, biggest bombs in million-dollar losses. This is the top ten. Yeah. The Flash, Shazam, Fury of the Gods. They both came out this year. Uh, Wonder Woman 1984, that came out two years ago. Yep. Dark Phoenix, The Suicide Squad, Black Adam, that came out last year. Um, Fantastic Four, it doesn't say which one, so I'm guessing... That'll be the Josh Trank one. I'm guessing the Josh Trank one. R.I.P.D., The New Mutants, and Green Lantern. So one, two, three, four, five of those are, are Warner Brothers superhero films. And they cancelled um batgirl because yeah that was more financially viable option apparently um and then we've got aquaman maybe Two. coming out this year seems to have slipped to god knows when because reports are it's not very good and it had the amber heard debacle issue with it oh so, boy. a flash oh. barry allen uses his super speed to change the past but his attempt to save his family creates a world without superheroes, forcing him to race for his life in order to save the future. This is the second last DCEU film from the Snyderverse. Mm -hmm. um, it uh, has been kicking around for a while now. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Obviously, Ezra Miller has had some issues, to put it mm -hmm. lightly. Yep. They have been involved in some legal kerfuffle. Mm -hmm. um let's have this film pushed back um now uh obviously there's some pretty well-known cameos in this everyone i think was aware from the trailer that this is officially michael keaton returning to the role of bruce wayne slash batman mm -hmm. for the first time since 1992 Two. yeah uh, the second uh of the uh, burton batman films mm -hmm. we uh also have uh ben Affleck. shannon yeah. Turning as Zod, Ben Affleck as Batman, Jeremy mm -hmm. Irons as Alfred pops up yep. again. Ron Livingston plays uh, Barry's incarcerated father, which uh, is have... recasting from Billy Crudup in um, the Zack Snyderverse. Uh, other people include, uh, of course, uh, let's see, sorry, Tamir Morrison pops up. Yes, as Aquaman's dad. Yeah, uh, should we You've spoil got... the, the big one? <laughs> Which which big one? They they well, really spoil the fact that it, 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 uh, it, towards the end of the film there is a vignette or a cameo mm -hmm. of Nicolas Cage's Superman from the unmade Tim Burton Superman film Superman mm -hmm. Lives. 
Yeah, yep. although as we sort of into there, I thought it was CGI and not Nicholas mm-hmm. Cage. Mm-hmm. So um, now I'm going to give you just a couple of years ago, la 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 la. If you mm-hmm. absolutely want to see what happens at the yeah, end of this film, and you don't want any spoilers at yeah. all, but I think it's been out for a month, and you know, most people either have seen it or don't care. Uh, for me, I was actually quite pleased and let out a bit of a laugh to hear, see that it, in the end of the film. The final cameo is George yep. Clooney playing Bruce Wayne mm. again for the first time since whenever that came out. Um, and right, I, yeah. I've heard people go, that was really disappointing. It made people sad. I'm like, well, most people just have to check for a pulse. I thought that was very funny. Yeah, I thought that was funny. I think that was a wonderfully unexpected option. Um, I feel like they very... Um, strangely, they, there was obviously with the, with the trouble with Ezra Miller, they very quickly with all their marketing and everything like that, they leaned much more onto the Batman kind of thing as like, oh, let's just show Michael Keaton finally being able to actually move and do Batman shit in the Batman suit because people have wanted that since the original Batman because he wasn't able to move and it's like, yeah, (laughs) punch and that's it. He couldn't move. He couldn't even turn his head, but now he was able to. And they did a lot of that. And then it was sort of like, oh, yeah, yeah, uh, we've got all of the Supermans. Um, let's let's just bring as much as we can into that. And like, all right, okay, sure. You're you're doing an element of um, sort of like Crisis of Infinite Earths sort of thing, but you're not really. This is you scrambling at the 11th hour of production of a movie that is already well over budget and over time to try and help ease uh, ease the audience into whatever James Gunn and Peter Safran produce for the going forwards. We don't know if Ezra Miller's going to continue. We don't know. Oh, I, just get, I will put money on it. I, I will buy you dinner. If a uh, any your your choice of Hungry Jacks, KFC, or McDonald's, I'll pay up to fifty dollars for your dinner if they get if he does another DC film, um, non DCEU film. I should note if it's a cameo yeah. in Aquaman two, that doesn't yeah. count. Um, yeah. <laughs> he will not work again in in in. I don't know if he'll work again. Period. I mean, like he's got his persona non grata for a while to come. Uh-huh. Um, He's not going to get hired again. Not for a not for a good while, which is a shame because he actually does quite a good job as Barry Allen versus and younger Barry Allen that he's partnered up with. It's not terrible, but it's part of the problem as well. Everything is so early. And so obviously. Here's the catch for me. This is so far away from the worst superhero film I've ever seen. It's not funny. That is fair. Um, this might take the make the top third of Snyder vs. DCU films. Um, that's not saying very much. Mm. Um, but it's not terrible. It's a long way from terrible. Yeah. And I gotta say, uh Annie Machete has to take a bow for that. Obviously, he'll have helmed arguably the biggest loss of all time for for, uh, for this film. But as we sort of said, 
Uh, all the fuss around um, Ezra probably contributed a great deal to that. The other half of it is that people know that this is a dead universe now. This is a, a legacy film. The story won't be continued. Yeah. Almost certainly. And I mean, it may be, maybe if this had come out and made $2 billion a la Avatar, <laughs> maybe then in that case they might have found a way. But that was extraordinarily unlikely to happen. So I feel like these things sort of uh, should be an asterisk next to Andy's name. I think he did a decent job with what was must have been an extraordinarily difficult production and I'm guessing a shit ton of studio interference. Oh, yeah, you've got to believe it. For for me, I think that overall he he did a good job of keeping all of the plates spinning um, and got this over the line, which I think we said a similar thing to the first Aquaman movie because that had some trouble production and they still managed to get it over the line. It were that that particular movie was overlong, and I think this is a little bit too long. Um, and they just tried to cram a little too much fan service in there than they really needed. But overall, it's not a bad movie. The performances are good. It was great to see Michael Keaton back as Batman and actually see quite an interesting take on batman and he hasn't uh, lost a step by the way like i think he was sensational as batman mm-hmm. again um it, it was like he never left yeah um i think the the weaker of the batman was ben affleck and the the chase sequence that was in that's like okay i feel like batman especially considering this is after he's kind of grown and evolved as like a this, strategic leader of the justice league he, he he was just you know leaving too much of the cleanup and it was it was a very messy chase sequence this is the guy that worked out how to go toe-to-toe with superman and he's having difficulty with the son of carmine falcone it, hmm, really okay and and then at the end it's like oh you're gonna have wonder woman come in at the last minute just so that we can go yep Take that one, move on to the next cameo. That, that was Ben deserves better. <laughs> I think though, it just for me, like I'm not a massive comic book fan, but I think it comes back to it's something that I kind of always thought about Batman when we learned that these films are gonna happen. Mm. Batman doesn't fit with the rest of the Justice League to a great degree. Mm. Yeah, him fighting massive, you know, alien armies and supernatural threats, you know, to the entire world doesn't fit Batman. Like, you know, Aquaman and these guys are Wonder Woman and Bat- and Superman are, you know, essentially for all intents and purposes invulnerable. Mm. You know, they're living gods, uh, essentially. Um, and this guy's just, what's your superpower? I'm rich. You know, like... <laughs> That's it exactly the problem. People say that there's a problem with Superman being too powerful and there's no stakes. He's a god living among men and fighting among men. Have you, have you uh, relate to that? They haven't presented Batman Bruce Wayne in the right way because he is always the one. There's a fantastic, um, in one of the concerts, I cannot remember which one it is, but he's having a conversation um, with members of the Justice League saying, yeah, I've got contingency plans for all of you in case you all turn bad because how else are we going to stop you? You are a living god. I, I need to make sure that we can protect you. And that in itself is a terrifying element of Batman, the fact that he trusts, but only so far, 
and he's a pessimist. And that's the interesting side of him where we've never seen that level of strategy from any Batman. And, and I think it's, 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 you're right. Now, it's, I've always believed, you know, Batman would be the guy, the general, right? That's kind of the way they tried mm. to sell him a little bit in these films. But, mm. they, they, you know, they usually stand well behind the lines. They're not on the front line doing mm. the fighting, the generals, yeah. the strategists. Yeah. But obviously, we kind of need to see Batman doing that because he's one of their most popular characters and they, we mm. want to see him kicking ass. Mm-hmm. Um, not that there's a massive problem in this film. It's sort of any bigger than any of the other films that he's been in, you sort of go, Batman yeah. just doesn't seem to belong out there with these people. He doesn't belong on the front line when you're fighting invulnerable, shielded aliens. Let's just say it was fun watching Batman strategically plant bombs on the big uh, giant Kryptonian swing round. And... It was for like, okay, yep, that's how he would do it because he ain't going to win throwing a punch. The other person in this film that I think uh, I, I'm deeply disappointed for them that this film didn't work out is Sasha Kali. Mm-hmm. plays Kara Zor-El or Supergirl, for want of a better term. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think some people had some criticism of the fact that it was Supergirl who pops up in this. And so in the universe that The Flash creates, it's not Superman who lives lands on Earth. It's his cousin Kara mm-hmm. uh, who lands on Earth and has been imprisoned in a, a Russian jail for... 40 years or something mm-hmm. uh they free her and she helps him in their fight to try and get back to his own universe mm. i thought she was sensational she did good. i was really interested in everything she was doing in this mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's in the actor of the way written everything mm-hmm. yep she and the chances of her coming back slim to none i mean it's a shame because they got it right yeah, you got they, one of your characters, a really minor character, right. I mean, when you go back to the Helen Slater, Super mm-hmm. Helen Slater, who also makes a cameo at yep. the end of the film. But that is a shithouse film yep. um, and a really lame version of the character. Mm-hmm. Whereas Kara seriously kicks ass in this film mm-hmm. um, for, for a fair chunk of it. And I really enjoyed what they did with that character. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh. again, they get that one right, but you really can't bring that character forward. Yeah, into the uh, into the James Gunn films without mm. explaining what the fuck this film is. Now let's let's talk about that element a little bit because they, I understand why they ended, why that why they did everything that they did to sort of like try and satisfy everyone and try and put a bit of a bow, so to speak, on Barry Allen, Ezra Miller's version of it because. You know, people really liked him. I know that we both really enjoyed him in that, um, the Justice League movie. He was a breath of fresh air in a very dour movie. Um, and his relationship with Cyborg was good fun. Notably missing here because um, Ray Parker... No, not Ray Parker. Is it Ray Parker? Ray Fisher. Ray Fisher, thank you. Um, still very much at war with uh, Warner Brothers over the treatment of actors. Um, and I feel like they kind of had to sandwich a little bit of that relationship in to sort of like, oh, we've got to make it a bit more of like a father-son relationship between him and Bruce, which I don't think really fit. Um, it didn't quite feel right. It felt better when it was Michael Keaton. Didn't feel quite right when it was Bruce Wayne. Uh, when it was Ben Affleck. And then... 
Do you know what the baller method of finishing this would have been? Ending it just going full Sopranos ending and just black when ev when he goes back in time. He's going, Poof. you don't know how this ends. This is exactly how we're going to pick up. And we just int introduce fresh, brand spanking new, release Aquaman 2 onto um, streaming services just to finish off the Snyder stuff. And just the next thing we um, have from them is Superman Legacy and it's just the start of a new thing. There's nothing we do. We are just left wondering what the hell happened. I don't think they had the guts for that. Uh, Warner Brothers really haven't shown a lot of um, cojones when it comes to this kind of thing. Um, Maybe they in a way this in a way this helps million write off. In a way this helps, and if Aquaman two sucks, that helps in a way as well. But I've got to go with this. Hmm. If if everyone liked Momoa as Aquaman. Mm -hmm. And some for some reason I didn't think the first one was very good. It was okay, but mm -hmm. it made a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Um, if he does really, really well with his film, Aquaman 2, yeah, if it makes a billion dollars again, mm -hmm. and you're James Gunn, how do you not take that forward to pick up Mamora and bring him into your universe or keep making those films mm -hmm. for Warner Brothers, who are probably desperate for a hit? Mm -hmm. Um, if, as it is, the flash miss. You know, being a complete flop means that they can ignore this and start again. Uh -huh. um, the only danger left then is Aquaman 2. If that does really well, yeah. they might have a harder choice. And it's probably a nice choice to have, but it's a harder choice for them to make. Yeah. Um, to then, you know, kill off a franchise that is doing, you know, is doing well, frankly. Money, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I'd say that, like, if you write this, it was too long, 2 hours 24. Mm. Could have hacked 20 minutes out of it. Yep. Can I say, I had pretty good time um this is not a 300 i don't know how much they fucking spent on this thing has to be oh, probably two uh 200 300 million dollars easily um but it, it, it's you know maybe it should have been a budget 200 to 220 million dollars um with the marketing that goes into that you're looking north of 300 million north of 300 so you know if you could have done it cheaper mm -hmm. um you know, as you, as we mentioned, some of the effects look rough. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, this is the kind of superhero film I don't mind in a lot of ways, in the sense that it wasn't, you know, uh, as self-serious as uh, a lot of the Marvel films have become. Mm -hmm. And I didn't feel like I need to do a world of homework like the Marvel yeah. films. Um, so, yeah, like I said, it's not perfect. It's got some, some definite flaws. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, I've seen so much worse. Yeah, absolutely. It's I'm go, uh, going back to the Andy Muchetti director. He has been uh, tapped for Batman: Brave and the Bold, which is going to be the next James Gunn, Peter Safran produced movie to come out. There's going to be a bunch of TV stuff between Superman Legacy and Batman um, as well. But um, I think that he is, if he was able to control this pile of stuff and to use the analogy of the movie itself, this bowl of spaghetti with the sauce, if, they, if he was able to make an overall edible meal out of this, if he's in from the start and just no drama, or problems with any of the cast, 
no global pandemics. Don't do anything on the Batman movie until the strikes are over and people are being paid what they rightfully deserve. Then just smooth sailing. That's It would just be nice to have that. Interesting to read here. So the script of this film was written by Christina Hodson. Mm. Um, Christina Hodson, uh, probably other films you might know from her, uh, would be uh, Bumblebee, which I think did quite well. Yeah. Um, and uh, Birds of Prey, which did not do very well. If it was a it was not a, a well-received film, and I would pull it a pile of shit. Um, interestingly, then, that they gave her Vista right after that. Mm. Um, but uh, I'll be interesting to read at the end of her Wikipedia article. She has joined a writer's room assembled by James Gunn to map out the overarching story of a DC universe and has been tapped to write the next Fast and Furious film. So even for a lot of the people involved, it seems like the fact that they held it together well enough to make a coherent film, despite losing a lot of money, isn't being held against a lot of the behind-the-camera talent. Yes, I think that's a nice sign, honestly. <laughs> But it was an interesting, um, the, the other two writers on the thing also wrote um, or helped write um, the Dungeons and Dragons movie, which, again, overall did did what it needed to do amidst a lot of stuff that just, there's a lot of baggage around Dungeons and Dragons. Being able to make that accessible... I think they did a relatively good job overall. I, I'm not a Dungeons and Dragons fan, but I liked it a lot. Yeah, yeah, it was it fun, was, engaging. It was fun, and I, I, I assume I, I don't know. I'd have to look it up, but I think it did okay as well. So, um, yeah, I, I would like to, to to segue here and say, but I, I think there's something to be really said about uh, the big IP films, mm. and um, because the next one we're going to talk about is also a big IP film. But let's talk about that first before talking about the, the, the legacy of these two films because uh, the next film we need to talk about is the uh, much maligned fifth Indiana Jones film, Indiana Jones and I'm So Very Tired. Uh, um, so, um, Dial of Destiny. Of course, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Yes. Um, now, for those who are unfamiliar with Indiana Jones, this is a character that Harrison Ford has been playing for a little while now, uh, 50 years almost, 40, yep. 43, oh, 42. Um, Harrison is back as an 82-year-old or thereabouts Indiana Jones. Uh -huh. This time he is joined by his goddaughter, played by Phoebe Willow-Bridges, Helena. Uh, other names in here. A, a script doctoring on the movie as well? Supposedly she is not listed as a writer, but no. there was talk she did it. Uh -huh. um, John Reese davis is back as Sulla. Uh, Toby uh, Jones plays Basil Shaw, Helen is dad. Karen yeah. Allen for a cameo as Marion at the end. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, the other familiar names would be uh, Antonio Banderas. Yeah. Um, playing... I didn't know he was in the movie until I saw his face in uh, one of the kind of ensemble posters for it. I was like, oh, I didn't know that. We have Boyd Holbrook, who was yeah. the bad guy in Logan, if I'm not mistaken. He was. Um, he plays the head henchman in a number of James Mangold movies, apparently. <laughs> Mads Mikkelsen is back playing his usual bad guy. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, In the Indiana Jones series, but he is playing yet another movie villain. 
uh, I, again, I, my idea about the movie with just vil, just villain actors coming. You know, I think there's something in that. <laughs> so, archaeologist Indiana Jones races against time to retrieve a legendary artifact that can change the course of history. Now, that description could have been reused for just about any of the last four films, I think. Um, <laughs> as he's noted, it's directed by James Mangold, he who directed Logan, Ford versus Ferrari, and, of course, he's probably his most famous uh, production. Uh, I'm pretty sure he directed Kate and Leopold. Plucky young advertising executive. Executive. <laughs> <laughs> we'll not, we'll not, we, we won't forget soon, James, about that one. Everybody else will. We won't. Um, <laughs> so, uh, well, it's the first time we've seen Indy since 2008, 15 years. Yeah. Um, so, Crystal Skull was not well received. Um, uh, of course, that was directed by um, Steven Spielberg on that occasion. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Spielberg is, is done this time. Mm. Uh, we got to meet Indy's son as well, Mark Lang, played by Shia LaBeouf. Mm -hmm. uh, fortunately, one of the good things we can say about this film is he is not back. Mm -hmm. and I... they, they write him out with a, a, you know, an off-camera death. <laughs> That's how you know your career is going, place to share. Mm -hmm. um, so Indy plays a colleague, he's, he's obviously now, and he's set in 1969, he is a an elderly uh, history professor at a university in New York City. Mm -hmm. um, we, we find out a bunch of bad guys are after something called the Dial of Destiny, which he we learned about at the start of a film, which Indy, Indy stole from um, some Nazis during the war. Um, mm. And he spirited it away along with Basil, played by Toby Jones. He takes it from Basil and it is in storage somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, and bad guys want to get it because apparently it can take you back in time. Yep. So they need to go to the place to get the thing, which you tell them where the place is to go to get the other thing so they can do the thing. It'll take them to the thing. Mm -hmm. um, that is basically the plot of this film. Mm -hmm. Now, you, I think, didn't like this very much. I... <laughs> I'm a big fan of Indiana Jones. One, two, and three. I love them all very dearly. They are formative to who I am and how I like to write stuff and how I like to consume stuff. The fairest way that I can put this is I personally found this entirely unnecessary of a movie because I didn't need to know any of old man Jones stories. And I didn't need a story of him traveling through time. I didn't need a story of him um, finding a crystal skull and interdimensional beings. That movie, Crystal Skull, there's a lot of bad stuff in it. Just trying to take my, my own fandom for Indiana Jones out of it. it for me, again, it is very much an unnecessary movie. I didn't feel like I needed it, though it was nice to have Marion Ravenwood come back um, because no one has had the chemistry that those two had in the first movie in any of the other movies. Um, but then this one, aside from a huge amount of CGI, huge amount, there's nothing particularly bad about this as an action-adventure movie with a supernatural sci-fi element to it. 
there's there's nothing specifically wrong with it. There's a lot of things that don't make sense and don't add up if you want to analyze it, but just as a standard box office movie, it's not bad, it's not good, but it's not bad. As an Indiana Jones movie, I don't need it. My hero, it's it's never nice to see your heroes get old. Um, and I didn't need that. I get it on a financial level, but just, it was unnecessary. I think that's fair to say it was unnecessary. I, I don't think anybody was gagging for yet another um, Indiana Jones film mm. uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but that said, it exists. Uh-huh. It was always going to exist once the Disney had purchased Lucasfilm. Yep. Whether or not um, Harrison Ford was going to be involved was really the only question. In fact, he seems more keen on doing this than he did Star Wars. Yeah, and if, if, if rumor is to be believed, he decided to do redo rejoin Star Wars even just for that one movie with the proviso that there would be more Indiana Jones. Um, it seems to be the film he series he enjoys most of his most famous anyway. Um, but given this film exists, mm-hmm. and I would have thought if you were going to make one of these, it would have been smarter to have done a reboot of some kind mm-hmm. or you know tell the story we had the tv show young indiana jones chronicles mm-hmm. in the 90s there's probably a wealth of material in there you could have gone out and got yourself i don't know timothy chalamet or something i don't know someone who looks very young wear the hat and and just <laughs> tell some stories about young indie right as opposed mm-hmm. to you know telling your story of a, a geriatric you know indiana jones um mm-hmm. uh, like this given all of that this film was okay. Yeah. I have seen some people absolutely brutalize this film. Mm-hmm. Brutalize it. Like it's the worst thing and it uh you know it's everything that's wrong with you know Hollywood today and yada yada yada. And you know, in some ways I would tend to agree with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the sense that they don't have the good sense to leave it alone or do something. Yep. You either leave it alone or you do something completely different. Mm-hmm. You know, you not one of it's one or the other. I don't think both of them are a thing you would do. Mm. Um, but even it exists, and I am curious because curious. I actually kind of had fun with this for the most part. Parts of it I did really like. So we opened the film with a chase sequence on a train where Indy is retrieving uh, the Dial Destiny from Mads Mikkelsen's Nazi. He must get very sick of playing Nazis. Um, but and has there been a better bad guy? The Nazis are iconic. Oh, yeah. I mean, they tried the Soviets last time. They're just not the Nazis, you know. Um, you know, you can make fun of Nazis and kill them as much as you want. And, you know, more or less, that's you, people are good with that. Um, and I liked that. I thought that was classic indie, except for one important element. And I wonder if you noticed it as well. The de-aging face technology was shocking. Well, shocking is a strong word. It wasn't as bad as it was in, say, uh, Rogue One when they de-aged um, uh, Tarkin and yeah, the yeah, de-aging yeah. technology they used for um, as a Princess Leia in that film or one of the other ones. They yeah. looked absolutely abominable. Yeah. Um, this isn't that bad. So it's obviously no. getting better. It's... But it's still, it looks no. fake. It's serviceable when it's not 
long drawn out conversations like the um the times when they've used it in ant-man for for michael douglas it's like mm, okay you're just about getting away with it because you're using an old technique of just slightly fuzzing the the, the screen so just looks a little bit more smoothed out than it actually is with makeup and things like that. Is this is heavy because Harrison Ford's an old man. <laughs> he's and, he's literally aged. And, okay. Shocking. How did he how dare he? Mm. Um but uh so that really pulled me out of it. There's no no surprise the whole the whole um the whole chase is done in the dark. Mm. Um, that's not by accident. That's to cover up the fact that the de-aging doesn't work yet very mm. well. Shall um, we but... bring the other typical bell as well, just so that it's done? Too long. Much too long. Much too long. Um, but this thing, I, I, I will get to that. But I'm just going to say in the things that I liked. Yes. Okay. Um, I kind of liked the chase sequence in New York. Uh, I thought saw the horse in the trailer and thought, this is going to be fucking stupid. Um, but you know, it wasn't, I kind of enjoyed it. I thought it was kind of fun. Um, necessarily the setup for the chase or the storyline for the chase, the chase itself was probably all right. I thought it was pretty good. Oh, almost indie worthy. I would say, um, that said that should have been the last chase sequence for a while. Mm. But it wasn't, we're getting to know the things we didn't like. Yep. There were too many chase sequences. Yes. I, I mean, yeah, I, uh, James Mangold seems to like doing action sequences on the train. He did it in um, The Wolverine, and he's done it again here. Um, the, it's, he de it's definitely, I think people have started to realize, ah, oh, what's one of the best action sequences, uh, action movies of all time that does a good job of keeping exposition interesting? It's the Terminator. And why? Because they're constantly being hounded and Kyle Reese has no choice but to just deliver information to <laughs> Mama Connors on the go. It's a great way of keeping it interesting and engaging, and you learn a lot whilst also being just hyper-stimulated with shit happening. Unfortunately, I don't think anyone else has quite gotten to the same quality, balanced level of telling that, delivering that exposition information whilst also creating an interesting action sequence that informs and drives the narrative. It's a tough act to go. This doesn't quite reach it, which is a shame because otherwise it is quite a typical Indiana Jones style thing where he's just bumbling from one scenario to another. Um, but just the the CGI, it just took me out of it so much. Some of it was rough. I didn't have a massive problem with most of it apart from the de-aging face stuff, which was used sparingly outside of the early scenes we didn't go a lot of flashbacks um i i was there any particular part of the cgo that made you go "Ooh, it's a bit rough well, the green screen it was just I, I i just could see that it was green screen and it was like it recently gone back and watched um the last crusade and the wonderfully notoriously pretty bad 
train sequence at the start of that with good old River Phoenix playing the young Indiana Jones and the fact that it jumps. People, thought, sorry, people think that's bad. Well, just on a production level, because the background goes from rocky mountains with green to flat deserts, one cut to the next, and it keeps jumping back and forwards. And it's just so like, ah, it really I with my own. never noticed, to be honest. I always thought that was pretty cool. I may have just ruined that sequence for you. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't, I don't see myself going back and watching it anytime soon, but I, I watch it in, in preparation for this. Otherwise, it is a great sequence because it very much is Indiana Jones just getting onto a train and then working his way through each of the carriages. And that's a good good way of just keeping action going. It's like, I need to escape. So on a train, there's only two real options, forwards or backwards. And then eventually, when an army is coming at you either side, it's like, all right. Then you start going, okay, can I go up or can I go left or right? And then it becomes, all right, the chase is over. But if, but every time the outside of the train came, it just looked so heavily CGI'd. It had that sh CGI sheen to it. It's it's not what the other it's not what the other ones looked like. I mean, you you they put a lot of effort into making this film look like an Indiana Jones movie without Douglas Slocum being the guy from the original three who shot it and made it look the way it looked. And they do overall a noble effort of it, but like the the chase sequence on the horse, it just looked too unrealistic in this in the screen it's like okay i can i i know that this isn't real and it just didn't feel right to me watching it there was nothing bad about the action sequence that was being presented but it was just the way that it was presented i just found it so jarring to watch i could see i didn't up. notice that i was kind of busy having a good time ish <laughs> <laughs> I think if I watched it again, maybe I would pick it up. But I was kind of looking for all these egregious things that mm. reviewers had said were in there. And, you know, I didn't see them. It, this is not a this is a better film than Crystal Skull. I said it. Oh. It's oh. a significantly better film than Crystal Skull. 100%. Setting the bar very low. I understand I'm setting the bar very low. Um, but uh, things that, like I said, there's too many chase sequences. They yep. needed to cut some of it out because it's too long. Mm -hmm. um, I found Phoebe Waller-Bridge's character annoying. I found her motivations murky. They just mm -hmm. kind of change halfway through the film. At the start of a film, we meet her, and she is a basically a smuggler kind of thing. She she is in it for the money. She wants to steal the Dial of Destiny so she can sell it and make a lot of money. Okay, yeah. that's a simple motivation, but it's a motivation nonetheless. Yeah. And so it's almost like a three-way tug of war then between the former Nazis and played Matt Mickelson and crew, um, Indy, who wants to should be in a museum. Um, and, um, and Phoebe Waller-Bridge, his character, who, Helena, who just wants to steal it and make a bunch of money. Um, mm -hmm. But I guess we kind of, we need Helena and Indy to come together at some point, but we never really given a good reason why they do. They just do. Um, and Helena sort of gives up on the idea of selling it and making a bunch of money. And, mm -hmm. I don't think Phoebe Waller-Bridge is the kind of actor who can carry a film like this. I just don't. I, I haven't seen Fleabag. Maybe it's the most brilliant thing known to man. I'm not going to make a call on that. I haven't seen it. But 
she's not interesting to listen to or watch or uh i don't find her charismatic i don't i think the last time we spoke about no hard feelings starring jennifer lawrence mm. which is a very insubstantial film but she has charisma at the wazoo not that she's gorgeous she is but she, she has so, she's interesting to watch and she's a great actor Phoebe mm. Waller-Bridge is not a bad actor by any stretch she doesn't have a lot of charisma for me and mm. she felt out of place and i don't think she has any charisma with harrison ford mm. um so i don't know what she punched up in the script i didn't notice that if, if it didn't stand out to me as a great script and you know that's yeah. not on her but uh, i really didn't like her performance a great deal mm. i didn't like there was a lot of that because it needs to happen agency with a lot of the character development like boyd holbrook's character he seems to be a caretaker for mads mickelson's character and then we see that he just like there's there's a moment where he shoots another agent and he looks shocked by it and but then and then he rolls with it and then he just keeps on going so like all right well i'm a nazi now it's like huh wait what what did you think was going on before before I, I i don't get your motivation here at all um okay sure and then the the element with the um uh is it the cia that's following him and um the um oh what I'm trying to uh, Mason, the character of Mason, but played by Seanette Renee Wilson. Yes. What, what's what's with what's with that? That's well, another complaint of mine. Like she was actually a really so she is a FBI, a government agent of some description, yeah. who insinuates that that you know the the plot for Matt Smithson to regain the Dial of Destiny mm. is government funded initially, at least. Uh -huh. Um. And at some point, they just say, oh, we're taking your funding away. And they just kill her when she was arguably, aside from Indy and uh, Helena, one of the, and Mads Mikkelsen, one of the most interesting characters building in the story yeah. for me. I'm like, I am interested to see what she does with this character. She's got to be interesting. Is she going to end up siding with Indy and, you know, mm. you know, oh, no, we just kill her. Yeah. Um, the only person of color in <laughs> a major role in. I think any of the films gets yep. killed in the first half hour and you're like, Oh yeah, that was a bad choice guys. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not a, it's not a good look. It's not a good use of an interesting setup for a character of genuinely interested. It's like, Oh, where will she go? What will she do? <laughs> Too bad. So sad. Yeah, and, she did now. Yeah. Um, and then you had the return of Sulla, as we said, and he was in a very extended cameo. And it's like, all right, this is more fan service than anything else. I don't entirely know why Sulla in New York would still have connections with other people and things like that. It's like, all right, it seems like he's very much just a family man with a taxi, maybe? um but okay sure he's the guy who knows people and can help indy out but again it just kind of it made to feel made me feel sad seeing <laughs> these characters just complaining about being old and 
then we had suddenly this, we were, we're supposed to believe that he's got this long-standing relationship with the best frogman in the industry with Antonio Banderas character. It's like, okay. Sure. Oh, you're not really going to do anything with this character either. You're not going to, you would loosely trying to suggest maybe they were going to sell them out, but no, that's not what happened. You just kill them off again. Okay. Sure. Eh, I don't care. It's, um, we got to wrap this up because we do want to try and yeah. keep it shortish. Yeah, um, so quickly, the third act, the final act, mm -hmm. where did you stand on it? Some people said it was good. I uh, thought it was a bit when silly. When they found the corpse with the watch on it, I thought, oh, maybe that's not the cause, um, the corpse of um, Archimedes. Maybe it's, and incidentally, hard watching a movie where the, one of the characters is called Archimedes when I've got my dog. Ah. <laughs> um but uh i was half expecting them to just go okay he indiana jones will go back and he will be the the guardian of the dial of destiny he becomes the exhibit much like what um uh belloc first said when he entombed Indy in the, the, the well of souls in the very first movie it's like that would have been somewhat poetic as obvious as anything, but it would there would have been an element of poetic nature to that. And then the end happens. It's like, okay, you just want to give him another ride off into the sunset. All right, cool. We did this when he literally rode off into the sunset with his dad and having him rebuild that relationship with his father. And then you dragged it out for two more movies. Okay. <sighs> No, I'm, I was with you. I think it might have been a fitting way for him to have ended it to stay in the past or somehow. Um, but, yeah, having him survive that, you kind of needed to kill him off, really. Yeah. Uh, and maybe that's because I don't want to see this happen again. Um, but, <laughs> um, but that, that's... Um, married in the past. You literally showed us this. <laughs> uh, I thought it was overall a lot more entertaining than I thought I was going to get. I was expecting a shit show. Mm -hmm. an absolute shit show mm. um it's not it's just okay um uh, i go in with your expectations low mm. um if you're not a, a big indie fan that's going to help because you're yep. not going to get your you're not going to have the, your you know you're not going to have uh such an emotional attachment to this and go man that was so much better when they did it the old-fashioned way yeah i think there was a, a lot they could have worked with this property could have been very valuable Disney, mm -hmm. but yet again, they've taken a shit on it, mm -hmm. um, and they've basically destroyed it, uh, mm -hmm. for themselves. So, for uh, me, if they had wanted to use Indiana Jones's franchise going forwards, I would have not done Crystal Skull for one thing, and I would not have done this instead. I would have just left it a while and just gone, you know what, some student at un at one of their universities that he studied at finds one of his old diaries and it talks about a, another artifact and it's sort of like the chronicles of indiana jones or the legacy of jones or whatever and it's someone new whoever they want they can create literally any character that was at some point inspired by the legacy and the legend of the great indiana jones and they met in trawling through their archives and they find his diary his journal 
and then that leads them off on a, on an adventure. That's how they could have done it. So I just want to spend a couple of minutes quickly just to say mm. that I think we've now got this is going to make a lot lose a lot of money. It's the three hundred million dollar picture. So a hundred million dollars more than the Flash got spent on this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is not going to make the kind of money. This needs to make it eight nine hundred million dollars to kind of break even, probably. Um, so it's not going to do that. So um, real question is, what's the future for these things? And you kind of wonder. I've been wondering with Michelle. Are we at the end of the IP film cycle? We were for a couple of while there. It seemed like Disney were the ones who were only going to succeed because they had all the IP that people wanted. Marvel, Star Wars, indie, you know, and that was what people were bringing people to the movies and to their streaming channel. They've destroyed Star Wars to the point where, apart from Andor, uh, no one's got anything good to say about it. And it's been dead for four years. No one's made a film for four years. And I don't think one's coming out anytime soon. No. They've, they've beat Marvel to death, where they're getting massively diminishing returns, apart from legacy characters like Guardians. You know, we'll see what happens with the Marvels later in the year. They're no blaming one's... their own creation for its failures. Bob Iger has come out and said, oh, one of the reasons why our Marvel movies aren't doing so well is because we're making too much TV stuff. You bloody chose that. You built this system that you're doing. What are you... um, and Indy's there now. Indy's gone. This is going to lose... 150 200 million dollars i would have thought around that uh in the realm of a flash um mm-hmm. and even willow <laughs> they destroyed that they took it off their streaming service it was so bad it didn't want to pay residuals probably yeah. um so lucasfilm as a creative force has been completely wrung dry for the time being uh the only thing that's really pixar. worth it pixar or elemental has completely flopped as well mm-hmm. um so they've kind of rip pixar to shreds as well so mm-hmm. i'm wondering and this is more of an open question rather than a because we probably don't really have time to go down that rabbit hole tonight but we, are we man. witnessing the end of you know the not just a superhero run but the the necessity for everything to be part of a pre-existing property franchise ip because they really don't seem to be doing well this year there's um and i think that it is not purely because the strikes going on right now i don't think there's gonna end anytime particularly soon and there's that's gonna the longer that they can do it and get what they deserve because the what the studios are suggesting is abhorrent frankly um but the gut response is gonna be okay right let's get people back to work you make me this you make me this you make me this because it's an existing ip we need to make money back straight away because we haven't been able to uh, create anything for the last two months three months five months however long the strike goes on for they're going to want to do it and they're going to turn things around quickly they're going to do minimal effort and unless it's on based on a project that was already in and they're going in just going brush up and tidy and it's a lucky diamond in the rough it's going to be more of the same. Uh, well, then, you know, you do what you always do. You get what you always got. But um, yeah. I'd like to continue this discussion. Mm-hmm. And I think we've got a couple of big franchise films coming out this week that are mm. sort of kind of extenuatingly part of existing IPs in Barbie mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. Oppenheimer, which is part of the Nolan universe, which is not yep. really the same thing. But anyway, uh, I hopefully we'll have That's a chance cool. to see. 
in Mission Impossible, which just opens very softly in parts of the world so far. But um, I don't know if we'll have a chance to see all three before the next show, but I'm hoping we get to see a couple of them and we can maybe talk a little bit further about that because if Barbie makes a $2 billion globally, which maybe it will because it looks pretty good, yeah. um, maybe we're right back into the swing of it. Forget about that one over there. This has made all the monies. <laughs> don't look at what, right. what's happening in the left hand. Hey, no attention to the man behind the curtain. Um, <laughs> and the man behind the curtain is telling me I should talk about Terminator 3. Yes. This is the movie that was spun on the wheel of this time so many years ago. That's right. I named it terribly. This Terminator. is from 2003. 20 years ago. 20 years ago. 20 years ago. The movie that many fans wanted the return of Terminator franchise. Everyone hoped that Jim Cameron would come back. We did not get that. We got another Terminator movie. We got Jonathan Mostow directing it. And we didn't get any of the other pre-existing characters back except for Arnold. That is not correct. Oh, sorry. The uh, therapist. Ah, he has a one-scene cameo. Yes. Earl Bowen. Yeah. Peter Silverman it. was in it. Apart from Arnie, he was the only one in the first three films. Yeah. Um, um, here's the thing about this film. It is not the worst Terminator film ever made. No, it is not. But again, <laughs> that's again setting the bar very low. Yep. <laughs> Terminator. Uh, you know, this film sucked until <laughs> the rest of the Terminator films came out. You know, like... You, you remember this came out, you're like, oh, that's disappointing. Mm-hmm. It wasn't very good. Mm-hmm. And then, then was it um, Salvation, yep. uh, Genesis, and yep. Dark Fate. Oh, and I... each one of those got worse. I I actually still maintain I kind of like Terminator Salvation. It has its moments, but it's yep. not as it's still not as good as three. No. Mm. I put it on a similar bar. It's a different type, uh, trying to do a different type of thing to it. But um, yeah, it's sort of like, okay. Definitely with Genesis and Dark Fate. But yeah. I think the problem with three for me, like it has some interesting ideas in this. I watched it last week. Yeah. Um, but it completely, un- all these films completely undermine themselves uh, by the fact that the end of Terminator 2 was so perfect, beyond reproach. It was just, he wrapped up in a bow and like you know perfect mm-hmm. the dark road the com- the voiceover from Sarah Connor we don't know whether judgment day is going to happen it's too perfect you can't mm-hmm. you can't follow that James Cameron said two is so frequently held up as one of the few sequels that does better than the original uh, so if you undermine that those that film mm-hmm. by the fact of going well actually everything they did in the last film doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Judgment Day happens anyway, which is kind of what you have to do if you're going to make it of a film. Yep. But you're kind of just completely undermining the, what is one of the greatest films ever made. Uh, Dark Fate does it worse by deep faking John Connor and killing him in the first two minutes of a film, which, you know, <laughs> um, just it's just a horrible look. At least they don't kill him off in this film. Um, <laughs> there are some cool ideas here. I think... Arnie works okay. I like the angle in this one, but mm-hmm. Arnie's actually the one who kills John Connor in the future. Yeah. And then they take, send him back in time to save mm-hmm. him. It's the same Terminator. Yeah. That's an interesting idea. They don't do a lot with that. No, they really don't. Um, it, it's, <sighs> but apart from that, 
they very much paint themselves into the corner of there is nothing we can do about fate. Fate does not matter. Um, you are a leaf on the breeze. The breeze is going to take you where it wants to take you. And whatever you do is not going to really result in anything because it's all predetermined. It is a very bleak way of looking at it. And it's like, okay. Mm, all right. That's, that's, that's an uphill struggle of a, of a narrative to tell because it's a very, very gloomy way of looking at it. At least with the first two, you are fed to the idea. Now, if they win this, it stops it. There's hope. But no, there's this, this movie very much slams that door in your face and says, no, this is purely a story about survival, not about hope. This is about survival. And I don't think it quite has the nuance to really hit that the way that it needed to. And I think you see a lot of people could have felt cheated by the film. I, it's so long now, I can't remember how I felt the first time I saw it. Um, but a lot of people could feel cheated by the fact that right up until the end of the film, we're stopping Skynet. Mm-hmm. And then the twist is there's no stopping Skynet. Skynet yeah. is everywhere already. And as you say, it's just about them surviving in a nuclear bunker at the end of the film. It's not at the end is done. That end is done well in the sense of if that's the ending you're going with, it's well done. Mm -hmm. But again, after the first two, I can see how people might have felt a little bit cheated Mm. to have, um, yeah, only got, you know, a survival story instead of a more uplifting ending we got in the previous because it's a pretty, it's a pretty downer ending. Yeah, yeah. But um, you're you're right. I think um, overall I liked most of the action. It was fine. Um, what was her name? Uh, uh, Christiana Loken as the TX. I thought she was just serviceable. Um, the bizarre choices that they made, like where she's pulled over by the police and she looks up and sees the sign and just her shell makes her breasts bigger it's like okay Mm, don't think you needed that i don't think that really sends the right message of what you're trying to do i get the point that's trying to manipulate subtly but uh, yep you are completely disregarding that point anyway because she just shoots the person and drives on anyway so there was no point in that might as well have just ignored that and just shot well simple um it's some strange I, casting choices here too, don't you think? Nick Starr and Claire Danes are a couple of odd choices. Yeah, they don't have any chemistry. Um, Nick Starr doesn't really seem to be doing anything of acting. Um, Claire Danes, whilst I generally like a number of things that she's been in, totally miscast in this. And the fact that there's kind of the relatively early reveal that the Terminator is not following John Connor's orders, but following hers, aside from a very almost galaxy quest style, hey, I I'm, I have one job on this ship, there's that interaction where he says, oh, I'm not going to tell you, I'm not, I don't have to do what you say, and then she tells him to do it anyway, it's like, okay, you're not really going to do anything else with, with that. Okay, you you you're really really not gonna do anything. That's that's a shame. That's disappointing. 
Uh, interestingly, I believe here's the story. Um, Nick Stahl was a last minute choice or a late choice to place um, uh, the original actor. Um, gosh, I can't remember his name from Terminator 2. It's on the tip of my tongue. The guy who played John Connor in that one is, yeah. of course, Eddie Furlong. Oh, oh my God, I can't believe I know his name. Uh, yeah. Eddie you. Furlong apparently got the role, went out and got really fucking high, got arrested, and <laughs> And got fired, so it was going to start Edward Furlong. Wouldn't it have been better if it had? I mean, I, he's looking a bit rough now, but maybe in twenty oh three he could have pulled it off. Yeah. Um, and Claire Danes' role was to be played by somebody else as well, mm. who ended up being fired uh, because they felt she was too young. Um, so I think it was Eliza Bush or something of that nature. I've never heard of it. So huh? in fairness, late choices. Yeah. Um. For for these two roles, which is why they kind of don't seem to work very well. Yeah. Um. The other interesting thing I kind of thought was watching is like, Jonathan Mostow, kind of a bit of a name around the turn of the century, has done doesn't make films anymore. Uh, it's, it's kind of interesting. He just disappeared off the face of the earth. I don't think he was me too. Um. But <laughs> yeah, he just doesn't do much anymore. Um. But yeah, I, I don't hate this film. It's just so far short of the first two. A little bit like indie in a way, you know? It's like, it's not absolutely horrid. Or it's got some redeeming characteristics and some interesting ideas, but it was battling uphill considering it's where it came from. I mean, yeah, come on. It's You're going up against one of the categorically most successful directors of all time in Jim Cameron. Whether you like him or not, whether you... Uh, find that he recycles ideas from other things and just puts a sci-fi spin on them. It doesn't matter. You look at the figures. People love what he makes. And he is a very, very skilled action director. Yeah. <laughs> it would be like someone going, all right, you know what? Let's get someone in to make Kill Bill Volume 3 that isn't Quentin Tarantino. It's not going to be the same. It's uphill struggle. There's going to be fighting against expectations. And mm, 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 I would not touch that. Interestingly, apparently, he was the one who convinced Schwarzenegger to do the film. We told him to just take the money uh, and right. and make off like a bandit, which I think he did. Yeah, I think he got paid like 30-odd million for it or something. I mean, and he got points, I think, like a, a chunk of the film's gross and stuff yeah. like that. Uh, yeah, and apparently the news from earlier this year is James Cameron is working on a seventh Terminator script. Yeah, but you know, there, there's been the kind of word about Jim Cameron being somewhat involved in every single one of the sequels in some way, except yeah, maybe three. I don't think he wrote any of them though. No, he didn't write any of them. But the thing is, if it turns it up to Dark Fates, he did. He did turn say he did say, "Oh, it was good," and he went out and promoted it. Mm -hmm. Um. But if he turns up at the studio with a script with James Cameron's name on it and Terminator at the top of a page, mm -hmm. despite the fact that I hope this thing is dead, I really hope it's dead. Like the fact that he turned up, maybe they'll do it. You know, I th I feel like for Terminator, the best way to reintroduce it is to not do, well, no to do like Ten Cloverfield Lane where you do just a, like a side story that is connected to it in some way that it twists to it at the end that this is a terminator story um 
and re-engage people's interest that way. Much like, um, uh, what was it? Uh, Split did with um, Unbreakable. And it's just like, oh my God, that last little connection. Suddenly I'm interested in seeing the character of David Dunn again. You could do something along the lines of this, just to do a soft relaunch and re-engage. Keep it on a low budget. Don't spend $250 million on the movie. You don't need to always spend that much money. Write a good, concise story. Film it with quality quality people in the production. And then just go, okay, you know what? As a little, little sweetener on this, surprisingly, this is going to be a Terminator movie. Boom. I, ha- I have it. I have it. The guy in the pickup truck. But they steal at the end from the uh, from the metallurgy place at the end of Terminator Two with a little house on the back of it. But they drive away, and the Terminator chases him in the truck. They steal his car. What happened to that guy? That guy's backstory needs to be told. You know, like I think he might have had a fuzzy animal hanging off his windscreen, his back rearview mirror. We need to know the backstory behind that. The emotion, uh, the emotional connection to that fuzzy animal. What happened to that police officer who he said? Get out when he jumped into the helicopter. That guy might have broken a leg. Maybe he descended into madness. Maybe he became a criminal and a drug dealer. We don't know. We need to know. There's so many backstories in the Terminator universe. Uh, The only way to resolve them is to spin the wheel. Spin the wheel. This time so many years ago, 10, 20, 30, 40, or 50 years Where are we going, sir? Where? Momento, por favor. I'm just getting our wheel up and ready there we go so our options are from 1973 cleopatra jones uh from 1983 mr mom from 1993 coneheads from 2003 bad boys 2 for 2013 world's end and from this day many years ago all right okay you're sharing the wrong screen. Oh, no, oh Coneheads. Coneheads. Heads is oh. the winner. 1993, Dan oh, Aykroyd. Coneheads. All right. Well, there we go, ladies and gentlemen. That brings us to the end of the show. We've had a, had a show for you. We, we talked about um, the chain movie of the week, which is Bringing Out the Dead, which I was the one to pick. Now, Travis has chosen John Goodman as the connective tissue between Bringing Out the Dead and Speed Racer. Yep. <clears throat> it could surprise you. <laughs> we talked about The Flash. We talked about Indiana Jones and The Dial of Destiny. And with those two, we kind of set up a future topic of the end of existing IP and the start of original content. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum. And, of course, we finished off with, this time so many years ago, spinning for Terminator 3 Rise of the Machines. Next week, we will be talking about Coneheads, which I don't think I've actually ever seen. I think I might have seen it back in the day. I'm pretty sure I rented it from the video store and go, okay, I don't understand this. Yeah. Because uh, we didn't get Saturday Night Live here. And I think it's um, based on... It's based on a, on a sketch from that, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, it's like so many of them. They didn't really go well. Session next time, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Where hopefully, you join us for Armchair Producers episode 187. This has been episode 186. Please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Ring the bell on the old um, on the old YouTube. Subscribe. Follow us everywhere that you can at the Fried Brain at Evil Trav. We'd love to hear from you if you've got any recommendations as well. Until next time, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, and good night. Good night.